Well, good morning, everybody. This morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9. Um, so if you have a Bible, please, please pick it up. Turn to Acts 9. It was said at the coronation yesterday, as Pete was mentioning the giving of the Bible to the king, and these words, Receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And so may God help us to receive them as such this morning. Uh, the title of this morning's message is The Miracle of Conversion. We are going to be exploring the miracle of conversion. Is anybody beyond the reach of saving grace? Is anybody so opposed to Christ or even just so indifferent to Christ that they cannot be led to faith in Christ? And perhaps our heads, they say no, but our fears say yes. It feels like some people in our life could never be brought from where they are right now to a place of knowing and following and trusting in Jesus. We think of family members uh, disinterested in the gospel, a colleague perhaps actively hostile to Christians, a neighbor polite but unable to hide that kind of wry smile, their amusement at our faith. Or perhaps we also think further afield of those who murder and martyr many thousands of Christians across the world each year. Isn't it true that there are some people so opposed to Christ, so full of disdain for Christianity, that we ought to abandon all hope of them ever coming to know Jesus? Acts 9 is written to extinguish our fears and our doubts. Acts 9 is ultimate proof that no one in our lives is beyond the reach of God's saving, converting, transforming grace. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. The great Pharisee Saul, later known as Paul, was without a doubt one of the least likely people in all of the world to ever bow the knee before the Lord Jesus. He was one of the least likely people that you could ever imagine becoming a Christian. And yet a Christian is precisely what he became. Through an unexpected, life-changing encounter with Jesus, on a day when he'd woken up that morning, hell-bent on destroying Christianity. And this morning, we get to witness the miracle of his conversion, the miracle of conversion in the pages of God's Word. And while some of the details of Saul's conversion are unique, what we're going to find is that every conversion is in fact a miracle of divine grace. There are no non-miraculous conversions. And because every conversion is a miracle, we can have every hope of the gospel converting the most unlikely people in our lives. So I'd like us to explore this passage under just two headings this morning. First of all, behold the miracle of conversion. And second, believe the miracle of conversion. First of all, let's together, let's behold the miracle. Saul's conversion, of course, is surely the most famous conversion in all of Christian history. Luke records it three times over in the book of Acts. Uh, once here in chapter 9, and then later on Paul recounts it to a Jewish mob in chapter 22, and then to King Agrippa in chapter 26. And much of the power of his conversion story is found in the kind of man that he was before he came to meet Jesus. So let's begin there. Let's begin with where Saul was. The first time we meet Saul in Acts is at the stoning of Stephen. 
Stephen, if you remember, has been seized and brought before the Jewish council for preaching about Jesus and they stoned him to death. Chapter 7, verse 58, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. So had a video of Stephen stoning been uploaded online onto Twitter or YouTube or somewhere else, Saul would have liked and shared it for others to see. He approved of a Christian's execution. And then in chapter 8, verse 3, he sets his sights on every other Christian in Jerusalem. We're told Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul wants Christianity gone. He wants Christian men and women, men and women put away in prison. He wants to eradicate and terminate and eliminate this fledgling Christian faith. He wants to kill Christianity in its tracks. He wants to wipe it off the face of this earth. So great is his hate for its message. So opposed is he to the suggestion that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. He's like Darth Vader, out to hunt down every last Jedi. He's like the religious terminator, intent not just on resisting Christianity, but erasing it from history. And in Acts 26, later on, Paul, Saul, tells Agrippa, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. That is the state of mind in which we find Saul in here at the beginning of chapter 9 this morning. Chapter 9 verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Luke here, in the way that he, he writes, he wants us to picture Saul like a wild and ferocious beast, like a rabid dog or a raging bull or a tiger hunting its prey. Saul is literally, he says, breathing threats and murder. It's like there's so much hatred in his heart towards Christians that he, that he vents it with every breath along the way. I hate them. I despise them. I'm going to round up and destroy every last one of them. I guarantee, I'm pretty certain, none of us has ever met someone who hated Jesus and his followers as much as Saul. And now he's asking for extradition papers from the high priest. Not satisfied with forcing thousands of Christians out of Jerusalem and away from their homes, he's now pursuing them into cities, other cities where they fled. Acts 26, 11, he says, In raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. They can run, but they can't hide. And he's starting with Damascus. Damascus is it's a bit like a hub city. It's a bit like Bristol, with roads and trade routes heading out from it in all directions. It's the perfect place for the gospel to go forth from. And so it's vital for Saul to clamp down on it there before it spreads. 
like the climax of a movie, the showdown. It's going to happen here in Damascus. The showdown awaits him. Except Saul's not going to reach his destination, at least not in a fit state to hunt Christians, because someone much bigger is already hunting Saul. To borrow the phrase from an old Christian poem, the hound of heaven is on Saul's trail. Divine grace is about to catch up with Saul while he's still on his way to Damascus. And we're about to witness the miracle of conversion. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, still breathing these murderous threats, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now this, of course, is no ordinary light. In Acts 26, Paul tells Agrippa that it shone at midday, but it was brighter than the sun. I don't know about you, but I think the sun is pretty bright. You're not meant to look at the sun. The sun is too bright to keep your eyes fixed upon. You can't bear to look at it, but this light is brighter still, and it's all around him. The glory of the Lord is everywhere around him. Saul can't avert his eyes. He can't turn away. It's everywhere. He can't ignore it. And even though it's painful, he can't not see it. Perhaps you've had that experience of stepping out of a really dark place into a a sunny day. Maybe it was stepping out of the cinema after a really long movie, or maybe you were down underground, you were visiting a mine, and you step out into the daylight. And the light is good, but the contrast from where you've just come from, that's what makes it so painful. Saul has been walking in abject darkness denying Christ, hating Christians, opposed to Christianity, but suddenly the glory of Christ is revealed to him and it pierces not just his eyes, but it's going down into the deepest, darkest recesses of his soul. A few moments earlier, Saul was a man utterly sure that he could see everything clearly. His life made sense. His goals were clear. His resistance to Christianity, he thought, was just and right and justified. But then, glory, the glory of the Lord appears. And then he hears the voice. And if he wasn't completely undone already, this voice would undo him. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. That voice and those words, they must have hit home like a bolt of lightning in Saul's heart. He had been so sure that Christians were wrong, that Jesus was dead and gone, and that their claims of Jesus being the Christ, well, they were blasphemous and vile. But now he's confronted with the living Jesus the risen Christ. And he realizes Jesus really is alive and reigning as Lord. And worse still, he's confronted with the fact that in persecuting Christians, he has actually been waging all-out war upon God himself. 
so closely does Jesus identify with his people in their suffering. And this means not only has Saul been wrong about Jesus, he's also been wrong about himself. Saul thought he was on the right team. He, he's one of these people. He thought he was good, as many of us have done. But suddenly he realizes he's the chief of sinners. He realizes he's been living on the wrong side of God. And the miracle of conversion, it always begins here. Uh, granted, not with a physical, literal vision of Christ's glory, but certainly with this inward, dawning realization of who Jesus is and who we are before him. A dawning realization that he is the Son of God and that we are guilty before him, vile and unclean. We, we need to be undone. And this realization is Saul's undoing. You know, once proud and ruthless, he's now utterly broken and helpless. John Stott writes, He who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess, as a self-confident opponent of Christ, was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. God has just torn down Saul's self-righteousness, his self-confidence and all of his religious zeal. And for the next three days, Saul remains in literal darkness. This was a dark night of the soul for Saul. And I think as well, he had every reason to expect this might be how things are going to stay. This state of blindness, that either the Lord was just going to abandon him to this blindness, or worse still, maybe at any moment, consume him and crush him for his life of rebellion. Little could Saul have imagined the true extent of the kindness and mercy of God towards sinners. Little could Saul have imagined what God does so often in his saving love towards even his worst enemies. And then all of a sudden in comes a man named Ananias. Now, a different Ananias to the one in Acts 5, of course. And what we'll do is we'll come back to explore more from Ananias' point of view a bit later on. But for now, let's just stay imagining ourselves to be in Saul's shoes. For three days, he's there in Damascus, blind, hungry, presumably full of uncertainty. And then out of nowhere, verse 17, a stranger enters his house. And Saul feels, he can't see, but he feels hands laid upon him gently. And then he hears these incredible words, words that are dripping with the undeserved mercy of God. Verse 17, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Paul himself then later adds in Acts 22, At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias, he explains what has happened. He explains why. And then he tells Saul to call on the name of Jesus, the righteous one, to be saved. 
What, what an invitation that is to give to the church's foremost persecutor. Call on the name of Jesus, the righteous one, and you'll be saved. He tells him, repent, believe, and be baptized. And then chapter 9, verse 18, then Saul rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This right here is the miracle of conversion. This is the miracle of God's saving grace. It begins with seeing Jesus for who he really is and then seeing ourselves for who we really are in that light. And then it leads to our repenting and responding to his grace-filled invitation. And finally, we see here with Saul, it results in the beginning of a whole new way of life. Just remember for a moment who it is we're reading about here. Saul the persecutor, Saul the Christ denier, Saul the Christian killer. But what's he doing now? Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. He's with the Christians, not arguing with them, not attacking them, not trying to arrest them. He's enjoying fellowship with them. Just imagine the surprise on their faces. Like the great crowd of converts in Acts chapter 2, Saul immediately wants to be with other Christians. Who could have imagined this just a few days earlier? Again, this is the miracle of conversion. It transforms not just a person's relationship with God, but also their relationship with his people. It transforms a person's heart and gives them a deep desire to be with other believers. You see, we might think of some of the seemingly unreachable people in our lives and, and we could never imagine, we think, them wanting to come to church, to be amongst God's people and do the things we do when we're together. We just, we couldn't imagine it. But we can be sure of this. The miracle of conversion would utterly transform where they want to be on a Sunday morning and whenever God's people are gathering. The miracle of conversion does that. And the miracle of conversion, it also transforms a person's relationship with the world around them as well, giving them a new willingness to be recognized as a follower of Jesus. We, we see that in Saul here, verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Think about the humility that Paul is actually, Saul is displaying here. He's not worried about now about what those who knew him of old might now think about him. He's not out to play down his conversion before his former peers. You know, well, you know what I think? I'm softening a little bit to these Christians. You know, maybe I was wrong to be so harsh on them. And maybe there's something to consider in what they're saying about Jesus. No, he's just like, boom, Jesus is alive. And he is the son of God. I have to tell you, Jesus is the Christ. This man, this Saul, who was on a mission of hate, has been transformed into a man with a message from heaven. This is a miracle. And certainly his listeners there, they think so too. They agree. Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed. They, they were staggered. And they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I have a question. How was he proving that Jesus was the Christ? Well, first of all, certainly he knew his Old Testament well. 
And his eyes had been opened to see, oh, it all points towards Jesus. Undoubtedly, he spoke as well of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and those who had witnessed these things. And he himself had now witnessed the risen Christ. But I tell you what else would have been a powerful additional proof for his listeners. That was the very fact that this was Saul standing there before him. The miracle of his conversion would have spoken mightily. As does ours if we're not ashamed to hide our changed lives before other people. Saul's life, his new life, powerfully backs up his words, and so can ours. In fact, so changed is he that the former persecutor is now willing to be persecuted for his faith. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Uh, This, sadly, is no glamorous Indiana Jones-style escape. No, being lowered in the night in a basket. But Saul is now willing even to be humiliated for the name of Jesus. Behold, once again, the miracle of conversion. The question for us this morning is, do we believe this miracle? Do we believe in this miracle? Do we believe that God, through his gospel, can utterly transform a person? their mind and their heart, their lives, their attitudes, their prejudices, all of their long-held opinions. Do we believe this? That firstly, God has worked this miracle in us, if we're Christians here this morning, and secondly, that he can work this miracle in so many other people as well. That's what I wanted to address under the second of our two headings this morning. So uh, second heading this morning, believe the miracle of conversion. We've beheld it, let's... Strive now to believe it. First of all, believe God has done this for you. The question often asked of this chapter is, are we meant to view Saul's conversion as unique or as some kind of pattern for the rest of us? Should we all be looking for a Damascus Road experience? Well, on the one hand, the answer, of course, is a firm no, not at all. Not in the physical Christ literally appearing on the Damascus Road kind of way. You don't have to go out today and find the Damascus Road if you're not yet a Christian. Saul had to actually see the risen Christ because he was going to be made an apostle. But the circumstances surrounding every Christian's conversion are unique and different. The ways we might first hear the gospel. The circumstances that might prompt us to consider the gospel the ways that God chooses to press it home into our hearts and to bring us to repentance and faith in Jesus, they really are quite unique to each and every one of us. As it says in one of my study Bibles, sometimes God breaks into a life in a spectacular manner and sometimes conversion is a quiet experience. Beware of people who insist that you must have a particular type of conversion experience. The right way to come to faith in Jesus is whatever way God brings you. And I I don't know about you, I've found reading church history and reading Christian biographies um, full of so much encouragement and help. But one of the things it does is it does remind you again and again that every Christian's conversion is unique. God really does sovereignly control the circumstances and set up unique paths for someone to find their way to Jesus, always through the same gospel, always through responding to the same message. But God is at work in our lives and has worked in many of our lives in unique ways. That's how intimately involved he is 
in our conversions. Later in Acts 16, we'll see the conversion experiences of two people side by side in just one chapter, which is really helpful. And in many ways, they look so different. One of them is, is a jailer who is converted most dramatically with God sending an earthquake to get his attention, compelling him to ask Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And the other of them is a woman called Lydia, who's converted far more quietly through conversation. She hears the gospel. God opens her heart to it and she simply believes. Very different circumstances, but both of them repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and are saved. So this morning, don't be concerned if you haven't had a Damascus Road experience. Only Saul had one of those. But equally, be utterly assured, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you are a Christian, you have had the very same spiritual experience as Saul. Your conversion is no less a miracle than Saul's was even if it seems much more mundane on the surface. The very same miracle has happened to you. The very fact that you know and believe the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done, that he came from heaven to earth to lay down his life as a ransom for many, the fact that you have come to see yourself in the light of his holiness, come to realize that you're not spiritually healthy, but spiritually sick, a sinner in need of a saviour, the fact that you have bowed the knee to Jesus in repentance and faith, that is a miracle. It is a miracle of divine grace in your life and in mine. The very same miracle that we're reading about here in Acts 9. The New Testament is so clear on this. Only the miracle of conversion can open our blind eyes to see and believe. For 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God who has shone a light brighter than the sun into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God who has worked this miracle in every single Christian believer. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he has called you. He has called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We did not do this for ourselves. We didn't do it for ourselves. There's an old story that tells about a little boy in Sunday school whose teacher asked what part he played in his salvation. And the little boy responded that his conversion had been partly God's work and partly his own. Well, the rather astounded and concerned teacher began to inquire a bit more about the answer until the boy replied, I oppose God all I could. And he did the rest. Such was the experience of Saul. And such is the experience of every Christian here this morning. What do we contribute? Our sin. Our blindness, our hardness of heart, what did God contribute? Everything to save us and open our eyes. No greater miracle could ever happen to us than this. Maybe we 
We pray for miracles, and so we should. But no greater miracle will ever happen to you than the one that's already happened to you. If you are a Christian here this morning, it has happened to us. And we really shouldn't ever get over this. That this miracle of all miracles has happened to us. Paul certainly never forgot this miracle of conversion. In fact, he kept on recalling it, uh, recounting it, writing about it, twice more in Acts, uh, twice in 1 Corinthians, once more in Galatians, once again in 1 Timothy, and no doubt many times in conversation and in his own life and walk with God. Much like Blaise Pascal, the already famous mathematician and scientist and inventor who was then converted to Christianity and he became a passionate defender of the Christian faith. When he died, it was discovered that he had sewn into the lining of his jacket an account of his conversion so as to always have it, always have it with him to remember it each time he took on and put off his coat. We would do well to ask ourselves, when is the last time that I reflected on the miracle and the mercy of my conversion? Have I forgotten the wonder of it? Have I forgotten God's sovereign hand on my life that has done this? And then let's ask ourselves, where might I so fresh reminders of it into my daily life? Where could I take regular opportunities to revel in it, thank God for it, quite simply rejoice for the sheer miracle of grace that God has worked in my life. Let us this morning believe God's word on this, that none of us has an unimpressive conversion story, that this miracle of miracles truly has been worked in everyone who believes. Believe this is what God has done for you if you're a believer here this morning. And secondly, finally this morning, believe God can do this for others too. Believe God can do this for others too. Twice in our chapter this morning, there are faithful, godly, mature Christians who struggle to believe that someone like Saul could truly be converted. The first of them is Ananias. I said we'd go back and sort of put ourselves into his shoes. So let's do that now. From verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard, about, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. This here really is a wonderful transformation all of its own. Kind of a second transformation for someone who's already a believer. As Ananias... An everyday Christian like you and I is led by God from fear to faith. From doubting that Saul could ever put aside his opposition to Jesus to becoming the very one who was willing to go and pray with Saul, witness to him and baptize him. 
It's really clear, isn't it, that Ananias was nervous. Um, it's, not, it's not always the most safe thing to do when God tells you to do something, to sort of answer back and go, hang on a minute, Lord, are you sure you got the facts straight? You know where you're sending me? But clearly he's nervous. And so he makes sure to remind God of Saul's past hostility in case God has forgotten. But the Lord says, go. And so still Ananias goes. And uh, for fans of the books or the cartoon, he must have felt like Peter Rabbit being told to go and care for Mr. McGregor. But he has faith in the Lord Jesus. And he has faith that the Lord could even convert Saul. He also has mercy in his heart towards Saul. As Kent Hughes observes, Ananias probably knew some young women who had been widowed by Saul. Perhaps some of his friends had been orphaned by Saul's bloodbath or had been killed themselves. But Ananias, whose name means God is gracious, forgave him. This, it is, it's such a powerful gospel moment, isn't it? When Ananias arrives and puts his hands on him and, and addresses him as brother Saul. John Stott writes, I never failed to be moved by these words. They may well have been the first words which Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion, and they were words of fraternal welcome. They must have been music to his ears. What? Was the arch enemy of the church to be welcomed as a brother? Was this dreaded fanatic to be received as a member of the family? Yes, it was so. This is the miracle of conversion. This is the miracle of grace, the miracle of Christian forgiveness. And all because Ananias, whilst nervous, was still willing to go and share the message of the gospel of Jesus. The second group who find it initially difficult to believe that Saul could have been truly converted were the Christians back in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 9 verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, and this is probably some time afterwards, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They wonder, could God really save such an enemy as this? Strike him down, yes, but convert him and make him a follower of Christ? Is that, is that possible? This must be a trick, they think. He's surely just pretending. But this time it's our, it's our old friend, our old encouraging friend, remember him, Barnabas, who advocates for Saul. It's Barnabas who puts aside old hurts and who has faith to recognize that God can and has already done a miracle of grace in Saul's life. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. This is Saul preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And Saul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So afraid, suspicious, assuming he cannot possibly be saved, to Barnabas standing in the breach and saying, no, brothers, listen, that this is a miracle of conversion, a miracle of God's grace, to, then, to then, them then protecting Saul, making sure he has safe passage out of the city, 
Ananias struggled to believe, but the Lord helped him. The Jerusalem church struggled to believe, but the Lord helped them. And the third group of people who often struggle to believe that the Lord could convert someone so opposed or even just so indifferent to Christianity, the third group that struggles is you and me. And the Lord is here to help us today to believe. Maybe we have been trying to reach someone for a long time. Maybe this person that comes to mind has outright told us never to mention our faith again or they quickly change the subject when we bring it up and make clear they don't want to talk about this. Or perhaps we've not even got as far as beginning to share the gospel with them because we're already so certain in our hearts they can't be saved. They will not listen. They won't be interested. They won't respond. Maybe we've been praying for them and nothing seems to happen. And perhaps even as we pray, we're praying, Lord, please save them. But in the back of our minds, there's this voice going, Lord, I don't, I don't think you are going to save them. I know you've saved so many other people, but I really don't think you can or you will save my wife or my husband or my son, my daughter, my friend, my neighbor, my persecutor. What we have to remember in those moments is that God had no problem at all in saving Saul. And if he could save Saul, then he can save anyone and everyone for whom we pray and witness to. Whether it's in a heartbeat or over the course of many years, he, God, can make them receptive to the gospel that we want to share. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, Paul says, God saved him in order to make him an example to everybody else. An example of the miraculous mercy and perfect patience of Christ to all who would believe so that no one for 2,000 years afterwards would ever look at someone, would ever look at the gospel and say, there are some people in my life and in this world whom this gospel cannot possibly save and reach and convert. No, truly, there, are, there is no one in this world today that the gospel cannot save. No people in this world today who the Spirit cannot convert. May we never write anyone off as being lost beyond hope as being too far gone and too hardened against God, God is able to reach his, his farthest enemies and overcome his strongest opponents. He is able to win all manner of people to himself through the power of the gospel and through the message of the cross and through the miracle of conversion. Let's believe the testimony of God's word to us this morning. Let's, like Ananias, continue to share the good news and pray and see what miracles of conversion the Lord might do in the hearts of those we're trying to reach. And let's finally take encouragement from the final verse in this morning's passage as well. Verse 31 is a promise of the fruit that comes when the gospel is preached and when the Holy Spirit is at work to perform this miracle of more and more and more conversions. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for the miracle of conversion. And that we are living proof that even the worst of sinners and the most hard-hearted of rebels can be saved. 
Lord, we thank you for the immeasurable mercy that you have worked in our lives. Lord, we once were lost in darkest night, yet thought we knew the way until you looked upon our helpless state and led us to the cross. Oh Lord, help us to never lose sight of the wonder of our conversion, of the fact that you have removed the scales from our eyes and brought us to fall gladly to our knees before Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that you are continuing to work miracles of conversion everywhere in this world. Please, we pray, help us to pray for those and witness to those who don't yet know you. And may we do that, Lord, trusting not in our own ability or inability to persuade them, but trusting in the gospel and trusting in the power of the Spirit to open their eyes and convert them. And Lord, as we, as we strive to do what the believers are doing here, to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we ask that your church here and throughout our nation and throughout our world would continue to be multiplied. For the glory of the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.